morning, everyone. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today to discuss this pressing and urgent matter in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Um, it's my pleasure to welcome everyone to the Atlantic Council. Uh, this event is being co-hosted by the Enough Project, so I'd like to begin by thanking them for their cooperation, their hard work, and of course their intellectual contribution to today's event. For those of you who may be visiting us for the first time, the Africa Center was established in 2009 to promote dynamic geopolitical partnerships with African states and to redirect US and African policy priorities towards strengthening security and promoting economic growth and prosperity on the continent. Central to the Africa Center's mission is the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which today remains trapped in a tenuous political situation. President Joseph Kabila, continues to refuse to step down following the constitutionally mandated expiration of his term in December of 2016. Earlier this month, the Roman Catholic Bishops Conference, known commonly by the acronym SENCO, spearheaded a deal between members of Kabila's party and members of the opposition. The deal stipulates, among other things, that members of the opposition will be brought into the government and that the country will hold elections by the end of 2017. Indications that the deal will be respected and implemented, however, are not encouraging. Last week, Prime Minister Badi Banga, who would need to relinquish his post as Prime Minister uh, in favor of a member of the opposition, rejected the terms of the agreement, which leaves the deal in a sort of limbo, and it's not clear at all what will happen if or perhaps when the deal collapses. This makes it a matter of pressing concern to the US government. Both the Atlantic Council and the Enough Project have been warning of this impending political crisis for a number of months and have published a series of reports. The Atlantic Council briefs were Why the Congo Matters by our own senior fellow, Gerard Prunier, and Congo Blues, Scoring Kabila's Rule by our senior fellow, Pierre Engelbert, who will be joining us for our discussion. The Enough Projects, The Century has also published a report on the scale and depth of kleptocracy and corruption in the Congo. All of these reports are situated just outside the door. I encourage you to grab them and read them. They're worthwhile. <laughs> That's a self-interested pitch, but I promise you it's true. Uh, today we'll be joined uh, in a discussion with three outstanding experts on the conflict in the DRC. Uh, Dr. Pierre Engelbert, our senior fellow, who is the H. Russell, Russell Smith Professor of International Relations and Professor of Politics at Pomona College in California. Um, Mr. Sasha Lezhnev, who is the Associate Director for Policy at the Enough Project and an expert in peace, conflict, and corporate, accountabilities in, uh, con corporate accountability issues in Central Africa. And of course, Dr. J. Peter Pham, the director of the Africa Center at the Atlantic Council and also vice president for research and regional initiatives. Um, we are going to hear brief remarks from each panelist before opening up to a general discussion, including questions from the audience. So I'd like to invite our panelists to join us on the stage. Okay. Thank you very much, Bronwyn, and uh, thank you to all of you for taking the time to uh, join us today. I, my, my brief is to maybe establish the context of uh, how we got to where we are and then uh, turn it over to, uh, 
to my colleagues here, first to Dr. Engelberg to uh, discuss some of the institutional dynamics and then to Sasha to, uh, to talk about uh, uh, how we deal with uh, some of our concerns at the moment. Uh, um, the, in, in many respects, we're, where we are today, uh, this was not a mystery or something that was unforeseen. Uh, uh, I, uh, I wrote a piece, uh, an op-ed, uh, at this point, more than three years ago, uh, with the title, Third Time's Not a Charm, uh, pointing out that actually the Congolese <coughs> people have already spoken on this issue and spoken rather uh uh, clearly and unambiguously in December 18th and 19th of 2005 when 84% of them voting in a referendum organized by, uh, with the help of the United Nations and the international community, endorsed the constitution that is now the, the constitution of this, of this country. And the constitution is very clear uh, uh, in its provision, specifically Article 220, that says that uh, Article 220 uh, in the Congolese Constitution is important because it comes after uh, Articles 218 and 19. 218 and 19 lay out the procedure for amending the Constitution of the country, uh, the various ways it can be done, at whose initiative, the, uh, the procedural. Article 220, however, laid down that not subject to these procedures were several things. The republican nature of the state, the principle of universal suffrage, representative government, the independence of the judiciary, multi-party politics, and the number and duration of the mandates of the president. Uh, no more than two consecutive terms, full stop. And these uh, cannot be changed. The French is absolutely clear. L'objet aucune révision constitutionnelle. Uh, so we all knew that come the end of 2016, there had to be a transition in power. We knew this several years ago when I wrote about third time not being a charm. We knew about it as an international community when repeatedly uh, US officials, uh, including Vice President Joe Biden, Secretary of State John Kerry, uh, certainly uh, Special Envoy Tom Perriello, our ambassador uh, in the Democratic the Republic of Congo recently, and I just want to reiterate, but also our European partners, African leaders, et cetera. Everyone knew this was coming. Uh, and yet, elections were not organized. Uh, the so-called Independent National Electoral Commission did not receive adequate resources uh, to uh, carry out its work. Uh, and then to further complicate things, uh, Last year, there was the decision made to split up uh, the existing provinces, multiplying the provinces and adding to the number of, uh, of jurisdictions and districts that needed to be taken care of. And so the calendar marched forward, everyone continuing to uh, emphasize the, the, the need for elections, but no movement toward the organization of elections. Uh, then we had the crackdown on uh, a number of protests, sanctions imposed on two officials uh, six months ago by the United States, and then following crackdown protests in September when the constitutional deadline for the Independent Electoral Commission 
to set the date of the election three months ahead of it uh, passed without uh, that uh, the European Union uh, issued sanctions on a number of additional individuals. And then, of course, we passed the date in November, no elections. And then, of course, the 19th of December came and went. And, of course, there was no, neither the, uh, the leaving of the presidential office nor the, was invoked the constitutional provision, possibly for the president of the Senate to take over. And that teed us up for the furious round negotiations, which Bronwyn alluded to earlier, mediated by the Roman Catholic Bishops Conference, Senko, uh, led by its president, uh, Archbishop Utembi, and its vice president, Archbishop uh, Ambongo, uh, which led uh, with an extension over the Christmas. Uh, uh, it was supposed to end by Christmas Eve. Uh, the bishops then agreed to start it up again, and the uh, Christ, uh, New Year's Eve uh, agreement, which uh, to date the the president uh, has not himself signed, although it's been signed by uh, persons going to represent him. Uh, and we'll discuss properly that agreement and uh, perhaps uh, some of the issues with it. But without further ado, let me tur turn over Great. to Pierre. Th thank you, Peter, and thank you, Bronwyn. So a couple of points I'd like to highlight about the accord itself, and then I will let Sasha dig deeper into, I think, the dynamics of where we go from here. And then I want to make a couple of broader points about um, some uh, um, more fundamental dimensions of politics in Congo that, that can help enlighten our, our understanding of the, of the dynamics forward. Uh, the first one, regarding the accord itself, the devil is in the details. Right? So there is an agreement as of December 31st, but really, to some extent, there is no agreement either. Uh, because they, they let a lot of things uh, uh, to be negotiated later as part of what they call les, les arrangements particuliers, right? particular arrangements. And that includes a lot of very significant dimensions, which they're negotiating about right now uh, with Senko, uh, who might be running out of patience at some point. So this is certainly not a done deal. Um, there's a big question of the appointment of the prime minister. Is it the prerogative of the opposition to just nominate somebody, and most probably Felix Tshisekedi, or is it up to the president to then choose from a, 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 a group of uh, uh, potential candidates? As Bronwyn mentioned, what happens to Sami Badibanga, right? I mean, the president does not have the authority to dismiss the prime minister. So until now, the president has always asked the prime minister to resign. And of course, they've been together. So that's been a problem. But Badibanga might not want to go, in which case the only way to get him go is to get a, a vote of no confidence in parliament. Uh, the parliament is in extraordinary session now, I believe, until Friday. And so I don't think it's going to happen by then, in which case you would have to call parliament back into extraordinary, extraordinary session because there's not another one scheduled until March. And who calls them back? It's Obama Minaku, who's, uh, of course, uh, uh, in the presidential majority. So would he do that? Meanwhile, we're supposed to have elections by the end of this year. So you can imagine the kind of time uh, problem that, that this brings about. Um, so there's a lot that remains to be negotiated. There's a lot that's very confused, uh, confusing and very uncertain. I would like to make a couple of broader points. One is the issue of legitimacy going forward. Where does legitim political legitimacy come from? From the point of view of the opposition, it was very well explained by Martin Fayoulou, who's a, who's a minor opposition uh, candidate, but, a, but an important one in many ways. And, and he said, you know, going forward, the legitimacy of the president, the legitimacy of the, <coughs> the forthcoming government, and the legitimacy of the institutions of the republic derive from the agreement of December 31st. So essentially, it says the constitution is superseded, and we have this new dispensation. 
the, the presidential majority does not see that way. And they believe that you know, this is a political agreement, but that the, 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 the constitution uh, uh, and the sovereignty of the state and the president remain the, the most important trump card. So you can imagine when there is some sort of conflict going forward, uh, these two very different interpretations will clash. And my guess would be that push comes to shove, uh, uh, sovereignty uh, uh, wins the day. Um, a few more points to make sense of where we are now. Congo is a very low trust society. And it's very hard to make sense of things if you don't bear that in, 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 into account. Um, there's low trust between the government and the opposition, of course. There's very low trust among the opposition themselves. So what looks like a united front, not the rassemblement, is not a very stable uh, arrangement. There's low trust among civil society organization. There's low trust within the, the presidential majority, too. Uh, certainly, people are edging their bets. Um, and to some extent, you know, that's the, the low trust environment is part of what makes it so hard for President Kabila to step down, because nobody can credibly commit to him about any kind of future arrangement that would preserve, preserve his interest. So the fact that the regime has not built institutions is coming back to haunt him to some extent. Right? So it's something to, to, to bear in mind. Uh, another important thing is uncertainty. So if you're hoping for clarific clarification and certainty, you're in the wrong place. It's not going to happen. Whatever comes out of this, there's not going to be a lot of, of certainty. Remember, we had a dialogue back in, in October that produced some sort of agreement. By the way, that dialogue came after massive national consultation the year before, which followed an earlier dialogue. I mean, there's been, there's been no uh, deficit of dialogues and big uh, uh, um, debates and, and discussion in the margin of formal institutions in Congo, which shows the extent to which there's dysfunction within the formal system itself. So you have the first dialogue, which produced a government, actually. Uh, and then you have a second dialogue, which is trying to produce a government. So you might end up with two governments, which reminds me of you know, the National Sovereign Conference with Birindwa and guess who? It was already a Chisekedi at the time. So this kind of confusion is actually fairly standard uh, in, in, uh, in Congolese politics, right? Um, so now you have an agreement in December, but that agreement is not really an agreement yet because we still, the agreement includes the fact that we're going to negotiate for the parts of the agreement which are being negotiated right now. So who's the government? What, are, what is the value of rules and laws? What, how, how does the agreement stand compared to the Constitution? What would be the validity of decisions taken by the current government, the previous government, the, the, the next government? Um, how, how do things get implemented? What will this government be able to do over the next year? Right? So I can tell you that one thing I'm very confident about is that uncertainty is not going away. And this kind of um, very blurred environment uh, uh, will continue to prevail. And my last point is this. that. I think that for the first time, probably since 2001, uh, at least since 2006, we are in a situation where the, the constitutional dispensation, the rules of the country, do not match the uh, strategy of power consolidation of the regime. So until now, you've had a regime under Joseph Kabila and his, his group that has been trying to consolidate power. They've been able to do that through a transition, through a, a period of post-conflict reconstruction, and through the new constitution of 2006. Now we're at the end of what this constitution allows them to do. And so we are at a period where there's a contradiction between the legal system and the, the goals, the likely goals of a, of a regime that's trying to, in the long run, consolidate its, its foundations. And so one has to give. Uh, so over the coming year, um, we'll find out which one it is. But I think that it's the first time since Joseph Kabila has taken power 
that we are in this situation, and I, and I think it's momentous. Thank you. Great. Um, well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Peter and uh, Bronwyn and Kelsey and everyone at the Atlantic Council for um, organizing and hosting this uh, event here. It's an honor to, to, to speak here. Uh, I would let, before I get to sort of the way forward, I just wanted to say a quick word uh, to, to mark the importance of, uh, of this accord that was, in fact, signed. I mean, the, the government did commit to um, uh, to hold elections at the end of this year and, and to, uh, to not hold a referendum to decide uh, the constitutional question. I think that, you know, in, in looking back, uh, it is a clear demonstration that negotiations that do have a mediator that has a confidence of both parties that are backed by strong leverage. And, um, and, and Peter mentioned uh, the sanctions by the United States and European Union, very important, the pressure from Angola, uh, the very important pressure from Congress in two uh, resolutions that passed, uh, as well as various investigations, including those of the century, uh, that I think uh, provided some important leverage to this, to this accord. And also I'd like to thank uh, Tom Periello and, and Ambassador Swan uh, for their leadership in, in, uh, in helping facilitate this process, as, as well as, of course, um, the leaders in the, in the Catholic bishops. Um, that said, uh, as we wrote in, in our comprehensive study last year, Criminal State, Congo has been run in various ways as a violent kleptocracy for the last 130 years, um, in which uh, ruling networks and commercial partners have hijacked governing institutions for the purpose of resource extraction and security of the regime. Uh, they let security forces pay themselves, they've personally profited from natural resource deals, and they've maintained impunity uh, uh, for, for regime-connected uh, elites. And so one piece of paper that the president did not sign uh, is uh, not really going to change that entire process. Um, and so I, I think that it's important to look now in, at, at what, in fact, the key terms that were agreed to in that important accord and, and really focus on, on making sure uh, that those key benchmarks in those, those um, uh, important um, agreements were, uh, are in fact implemented in a time-bound manner. I believe the United States and, the, and European uh, countries and the entire international community uh, should follow Congolese civil society's lead in holding uh, the parties, particularly the Congolese government, to account uh, for a couple of key benchmarks. I would highlight five in particular. So number one, and I believe this should be the priority, is really finding a date and a realistic timetable for the holding of these elections in 2017. That is the real priority. I think Congolese civil society that we speak to is already very frustrated with the process. And if uh, by sometime in February there's not uh, a strong uh, commitment to, in fact, hold these elections on time, uh, then uh, you know, you'll see an escalation of, uh, of pressure from them. Uh, number two is to fully establish this oversight committee that was, uh, 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 that was written out in, into the accord with very clearly defined roles. Etienne Chisiketi is supposed to chair this, um, uh, this oversight committee, but what exact powers will he have given the 
uh, discrepancies that Pierre uh, highlighted between the agreement and the, and the Constitution uh, or constitutional process. Number three uh, is establishing a date for the handover of the Prime Minister. The Rassemblement, the opposition, has picked um, uh, their candidate, uh, but there's no timetable for, uh, for the handover. In fact, numerous uh, people have, have said that uh, uh, there's, there's uh, questions to, as to whether this handover will happen and, in fact, install a new uh, transitional government. Number four uh, is to drop the charges against political prisoners and resolve those outstanding cases. There remain a number of uh, prisoners, uh, nine from Lucha and Filimbi, that uh, remain in prison today, and those that have been let go, uh, uh, their charges are still pending. The new Interior Minister, Shadari, has, uh, has commented that they will work to resolve this issue, but here we are, uh, you know, almost three weeks after the signing of this accord, and there's been no progress as of yet. Uh, and, and the fifth benchmark I would uh, highlight would be the restoration of the independent media. There were six uh, Congolese independent media stations that were shut down, as well as Radio France International. Uh, those have not yet been restored. They're, they're, those are supposed to be confidence-building measures in the accord, uh, and yet, uh, as, as Pierre highlighted, there's, there's no confidence uh, being built. I would also just highlight two things that are not necessarily written in, into the accord, but at their, that will be very important for uh, increasing the uh, confidence of the international community and, and civil society in, in the process. Um, uh, number one is uh, the transparency of the electoral process itself. So, you know, what are going to be the rules of the campaigning? Will the government stick by them in terms of uh, um, political prisoners, etc.? Uh, the monitoring role of the committee and conducting an external audit. I think that those are um, uh, very important uh, and possible reconfiguration of the electoral um, <coughs> the electoral body. Uh, the second issue is not an immediate priority, but a very important one, uh, given what we've seen in terms of the corruption that's been happening. Uh, the state-owned enterprises in Congo are, are you know, quite frankly, uh, been very problematic in terms of suspicious transactions being uh, uh, used by members of the regime to uh, conduct various uh, nefarious activities. And so uh, we would call for uh, those key state-owned enterprises. I would highlight Jekamins. Um, and so chemo as, as two uh, uh, enterprises that should undergo third-party audits um, and, uh, and make those audits publicly accessible. Uh, we saw just yesterday that uh, Jacobins is conducting another um, undisclosed uh, transactions worth, worth, worth quite a number of uh, million dollars. Uh, so, you know, what can the U.S. and European Union do now? I think it's very important that they use policy tools uh, and to create leverage uh, for accountability and for this democratic transition process. So number one um, in uh, something that has not been used very much is anti-money laundering tools. So the, the Congolese officials and their commercial networks are still using U.S. dollars and the international financial system for their transactions. And so there's a number of steps that the U.S. Treasury Department, um, through the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, as well as European financial intelligence units, can take. Um, private steps to, uh, uh, to uh, demand vigilance from banks, uh, various advisories which highlight patterns of corruption and possible uh, use of the U.S. Patriot Act in terms of designated certain banks or certain transactions or certain individuals 
individuals as uh, jurisdictions of primary money laundering concern. Number two, uh, if uh, the government does not stick by the terms of the agreement, I believe that uh, higher level targeted sanctions should be employed against top financial advisors, commercial partners, and possible even, uh, 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 well, people that fit into both of those categories that also happen to be members of Joseph Kabila's family. Uh, number three, I believe that uh, steps of accountability are very important. Uh, the FCPA case uh, that relates to Congo continues today, and I believe there should be indictments issued for that. That's the OXIF case. Um, as well as targeting the uh, facilitators of violence. Of course, there are a number of armed groups out there, but the Congolese army officials and units that work with them directly and have profited from their illicit uh, uh, natural resource extraction um, uh, have not been targeted in, in legal cases. And then lastly, I would highlight various governance and, and um, and accountability, excuse me, transparency measures such as independent audits, strengthening EITI process, and reforming aid programs to, uh, further to make sure that full accountability measures are built into the, um, to the uh, programs. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Um, well, since you've opened the topic of policy prescriptions, um, let me, if I can, invite Dr. Fahm and Dr. Engelbert to comment on your recommendations or perhaps add on. What should the U.S. be doing to assist in this transition to encourage Kabila to step down or Badibanga to step down? Pierre. Okay, so I think that what the U.S. can do is a function of what the U.S. wants to achieve. Um, if, if what we want is to uh, actually have uh, Kabila step down, then I certainly think that um, um, the kind of sanctions, the, the kind of pressure that uh, Sasha has highlighted, mm -hmm. I think have been fairly significant and have had some significant impact. Uh, sanctions, asset freezing of his entourage. Uh, I would also say work with Angola. Uh, you know, there's always an issue of legitimacy of outsiders intervention, but Angola is certainly an important godfather of the regime, which is concerned about the potential for instability. And I would, I would imagine that we can, you know, they've already signaled some, uh, some interest in, uh, in moving forward. But the question is, you know, if, if this is what we want, then we re who do we replace him with? I mean, we have to be careful what, what we're wishing for. Jean-Claude Kabila, his little brother, just set up a political party um, last week. Um, and so mm. God knows, right? Uh, if we just want elections and without you know, any, expect any kind of outcome, specific outcome, I don't see it possible without us paying for them and actually without literally organizing them to a certain extent. Uh, maybe through MONUSCO like we did in 2006. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's going to happen otherwise. Uh, so there's almost like a, um, a trusteeship uh, uh, system needed here. If what we want is to avoid violence, then I also think the kind of sanctions that we've had in place and that the, the EU also has had, I think, help to some extent. That's with violence from the regime, but you have to bear in mind that um, there's, there's potential violence from the opposition too, and so we have to keep uh, them invested in the in in process of negotiation to, to avoid this. Uh, if what we want is, is stability in the region, then, then that's completely different. You might want to let this, this regime consolidate, uh, because then uh, um, you know, if, if what you really care about is not having more, more bloodshed, then there's something to be said for that. I'm not, I'm not making a normative argument. I'm trying to make an analytical one. If, you, if you, what you want is more accountability, of, of governance, then I think it might be a good idea to push for further decentralization, for further uh, effective decentralization for these reforms to be carried through because they've really been sabotaged until now. But there's room there for a, a kind of governance that would be more responsive to the needs of, of citizens. So those are kind of
have different objectives with, with different kind of recommendations. Oh, I would agree with everything uh, that Sasha and Pierre have said, but I think what we need to do is have a menu of options and including the option to ratchet things up. Uh, uh, Sasha mentioned, I think, very probably the sanctions that are currently there, potential future sanctions. Uh, and I think that I would take it even one step further to beyond the, the option on the table of sanctions against members of the family and others uh, to include travel bans. And then beyond which, as uh, Pierre mentioned earlier, the legitimacy in many respects of the government hinges upon this political accord because December 19th has come and gone a month ago. And so if this accord is dead or is allowed to wither, then the question, I think it should be an open one and a policy option, not saying that it should be taken immediately, on the table is whether we continue to recognize uh, Joseph Kabila as anything other than a squatter at the Palais des Nations. Uh, and do we recognize him as the government uh, of the country? Should be on the table, which would have consequences, at least for FCPA and the Bribery Act, of transfer payments made to the government by outside company. Again, this is in an arc of things. It's certainly not the first where you go. But these are things that should be considered and be instruments, tools of statecraft to add leverage to the situation so that, God willing, the agreement that the bishops helped mediate is the way forward toward elections. But I think there should be a menu of options ratcheting things up uh, and an increasing, increasing the pressure because it's in the interest of the international community and certainly in interests of Congo's neighbors in the area that the situation uh, not explode. And I think the collapse of the agreement or the failure to hold elections this year uh, opens up a can of worms that we don't want to go into. Absolutely. Um, I would like to point out that at the Atlantic Council, we uh, do not take institutional positions, although our experts have strong views on various subjects. Uh, and at the Africa Center, we have hosted both uh, key members of the opposition, such as Moise Katumbi, but also senior representatives of the government. We've taken pains to provide a platform for them to make their case as well. Um, in the spirit of, um, of even-handedness, we're going to turn uh, over to the audience for, for questions from you. Um, I'd like to request um, that you refrain from commentary. Um, and make sure that you are asking a question as opposed to um, presenting a personal point of view. Would anyone like to kick us off? Thank you, Brian. Absolutely. My name is Ed Stewart from Prison Bridge. Question is for, oh, thank you. Um, President, uh, questions for any of you all. Um, the opposition, their behavior during the negotiations of the agreement. How do you all feel that that then bodes for them unifying, further splitting, consolidating? They're obviously a very dynamic group, but how was their behavior during the negotiations? How does it bode for a potential election season? Thank you. Anyone want to grab that? Sasha? Are we going to take multiple or one at a time? I usually one at a time. Yeah, you know, I, uh, the opposition is, I think, fundamentally divided. So there's, there's, there's an agreement now, there's a rassemblement, so a, a rally of the opposition. 
I do think they benefit from the negotiation because you know this gives them a chance to make sure that elections or to, to this gives them a chance that elections might take place. It gives them a chance that, the, that there would be no referendum to change the constitution. So those are very important things that keep them together, and but also it gives them a chance to to partake. In, in participating in government and have access to resources. So when it comes to that, I think they're, they're less likely to be united. When it comes to the actual getting close to the election, I think that you know, it's, a, it's a rassemblement now, but the UDPS would have, certainly I cannot imagine the UDPS not backing uh, somebody from within UDPS or from the same family. And then I, I imagine the G7 would rally behind Katumbi, Kamere would, would be for Kamere, and everybody else would be for, for getting something. Um, so I think the potential for division is, is high. Yeah, I would just add that, uh, you know, Congolese politics is very complicated, which always makes it a very interesting country to work on. But um, I, I think their opposition displayed a remarkable uh, amount of unity in the, in the negotiations and in the, um, uh, in the lead up to the accord, given all the tensions and, of course, the attempts uh, to buy off individual members. Um, I think the Camere uh, sort of signing early of this October agreement was, uh, was a little premature and, and people may Folks may turn against him. Let's see. Uh, but I, I agree with what Pierre said. I, I think that uh, you know, as we get closer, if we indeed get closer to an actual electoral process, that may um, change a bit. You know, that said, if you look at Jason Stern's uh, the Congo Research Group poll, uh, there were some pretty clear leaders in that um, in that poll. And so, you know, Katumbi's fate uh, in in this whole process, which is to be negotiated. Uh, by the by, the bishops is uh, is an important, very very important factor going forward. In fact, uh, taking up on that point, I would say actually the opposition displayed a remarkable uh, degree of statesman-like behavior during the negotiations, giving ground on a few on I think two key points. One was the fact that Katumbi's fate was not settled and uh, in the accord when that he could have held out given the level of support he had. The demand that that be settled in the accord, which probably would have scuttled the accord. There would not have been an accord. So allowing that to be mediated later by the bishops, in fact, as he gave an interview saying he placed his hands, uh, his fate in the hands of the bishops. The other point to the opposition, it was a, a political risk. Uh, it's December 19th uh, was the end of the president's mandate. The 20th was a clear thing. It's black and white. It's very easy to mobilize people over something that's black and white. Uh, they had the momentum to mobilize people over technical, even of substantive violations of this lengthy accord. Uh, it's kind of hard. You can't get that into a soundbite. Uh, that you know, if someone is in violation of section four, paragraph two, sub article two. It's not going to get so that. So I would say the opposition, both sides gave ground. But I think the opposition displayed a bit of. Uh, statesman-like behavior, which I think is to be commended. Excellent, absolutely. Good morning. My name is Marie-Claire Gonda. I'm running for office in the DRC as a candidate for uh, uh, Congress in the Congo. And my question has to do with the lack of representation of the women in any of the talk, in any of the dialogue, Actually, in anything that has to do with the, the decision-making of this country, of, of the Congo. So I would like to know, is there, a res is there a specific reason why we are not addressing that part? And um, I don't understand 
the part of addressing uh, just the main view mm -hmm. and dismissing, for me, as I see it, the women position. And I, I, when you look at the way uh, things are happening, uh, they're all fighting for positions. But I think the only person who dismissed the position or being anybody in the leadership of the uh, political uh, arena is a woman, Eva. Uh, uh, which she did not ask to have a position, but she's making sure that we can have a process that will lead to this election. So my question goes to why we don't see more women, why we don't hear, why we don't include more women in all those dialogues. Thank, Thank you. you. Hmm, let me turn to our three male panelists and ask them what <laughs> 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 I think Congo is a very patriarchal society. I think that uh, politics is, is men control politics uh, more than in many other places. Uh, I, I wish you good luck running for if you have elections. You know, Absolutely. Running for for the national assembly. Or, yes. Yeah. So uh, I think there's a very small representation of women as it stands now. Uh, I, I don't. I, you know. The big issue with politics in Congo is that, uh, like as in many other developing countries, that there's a dimension of patronage, which means that you need to accumulate resources to redistribute them, which then when, when the system is biased towards men, it's a hard thing for women to accumulate the kind of assets that, that put you in a position to compete like that. Now, this being said, I don't think Eva Zaimba is that different the way she behaves. She's essentially asking for, for better participation in this, this transition agreement like any other political party. I don't know that the MLC would have a different position if it was not represented by, by a woman at this point. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a very important structural uh, weakness, which is not, not at all uncommon in sub-Saharan Africa. make very fair and I think very just uh, demands. And my, my only response to that is the key is, is organizers. The, many of these parts, and this, is not this does not apply only to the Democratic Republic of Congo, but throughout most of Africa, political parties may have the name democratic, progressive, and other adjectives in their name. But in reality, their own internal governance structures are neither democratic nor progressive. Uh, and I think part of it is there. They, they are structures used by individuals. And so my challenge to civil society is to organize new political structures, new parties that are democratic, that elect their leaders and choose their leaders instead of leaders by hereditary succession or some other their vehicles for the ambitions of one or two people. So I think one of the reasons I think there were not as many women in the process, and maybe that's is that the number of Congolese, I can only think of two or maybe three at most major political 
organizations that are legally registered that are actually have a woman as you know, the, the legal representative or, or a head. So maybe it's time, to, if you can't get ahead in the existing organizations, it might be time to, and I realize it's difficult for different reasons, but to organize new structures. Yeah, I mean, I would totally agree with your comment. I think that was a major problem with uh, the negotiations. Uh, we ourselves at Enough have been trying to encourage some women leaders in Eastern Congo to step up and run for political office. They, they've, there have been many prominent civil society leaders. In fact, one of the women civil society leaders of Lucha was arrested in the days um, around December 19th. And, and uh, so there was an, another uh, problem. So yeah, I mean, I do wish you all the best in your uh, political campaign. I think that um, I do know that some of the envoys uh, uh, did speak uh, extensively with um, uh, women groups, uh, women leaders, uh, other civil society groups in those, uh, maybe they were not at the table, but uh, their, many of their views were um, uh, attempted to be incorporated into that. I know when we traveled with Special Envoy uh, Periello, he was uh, very keen on meeting um, women leaders across the country to try to um, involve them in the, in the talk. So I would certainly hope that that would be um, uh, ramped up uh, this year. Hi, I'm Nick Hanlon from the Center for Security Policy. I just want to invite the panelists to include more on the East and the implications for these things in the Kivus. Um, I don't know if it's efficient to categorize it both politically and then also um, who the main beneficiaries are for mineral extraction, uh, mainly more to Sasha on that, but also what the dynamics are. I know Kabila got over 90% of the vote in 2011. It's very hard to find somebody over there who'll say something nice about him. So if you could just speak to that contradiction. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, we're very concerned with uh, the security situation in Eastern Congo. One of the tactics we uh, expect that may be used is the declaration of a national emergency and therefore would uh, nullify any um, political discussions or the holding of uh, elections this year, et cetera. Uh, we're very concerned about these new reports of M23 fighters uh, possibly coming in and reorganizing. Certainly in the, um, in the lead up uh, to December 19th and a couple of days uh, after that, we, we, uh, we, we saw um, uh, different militia attacks. Uh, of course, the, the various groups uh, have documented what's been happening in, in Beni, uh, <coughs> not in the, with the Congolese army officers um, uh, tied to uh, uh, you know, allowing ADF uh, remnants to attack or, or, or um, uh, contributing to the instability there strongly. So I think that you know, if, if the implementation does indeed go badly, uh, that there are various political leaders who would start to um, use more uh, militias. We heard of a new uh, uh, militia coming up this week. So uh, we're, we're, we're quite concerned. Um, quite concerned about that. Uh, so I think that would be a serious uh, impl uh, implication of, uh, of poor, poor politics. Let me ask you, since you've raised this, Sasha, I mean, what do you think the fate of the accord is going to be? Will it last? Um, or do you think that it will simply collapse before its year is expired? I personally think that without serious leverage and pressure, uh, I don't see that the parties, uh, uh, particularly the government, uh, have a strong will to implement it yet. Mm -hmm. um, I think they're seeing some sort of a vacuum in attention, and uh, like Peter, uh, Peter said, that you know there's not a black and white 
December 19th date that, you know, people are not going to rally behind paragraph two, section three. Um, and, uh, and there's a gap in, in administration. So, you know, they're trying to play that out. So I think that's going to be critical to keep it going. I don't know what the other people mm -hmm. say. I think also that short of significant outside pressure, including the kind of ratcheting up that uh, Peter mentioned, I think that intrinsically the dynamics of the accord lean towards um, uh, failure of, uh, of implementation, if not even at the conclusion level. And if that happens, I imagine that it would, it would be something that drags on over a few months with the kind of uncertainty I was highlighting earlier. And, and, and then eventually it gets you know, this kind of rotten situation where you cannot exclude a, you know, some, some more dramatic development, including the decision to go to a referendum on the part of the incumbents or um, something uh, potential of a, of, a, of a coup from from people within the regime who might be favoring uh, other dynamics. So certainly, I, personally, I'm not as concerned about the possibility of return to large-scale violence. And I think the connections with the East are, are there. They're indirect, largely. But I, I could be wrong about that, but I don't see that as strongly. But certainly, I imagine the possibility of a radical change in Kinshasa is, is not to be discounted. I would, you know, I preface this by saying I very much hope, it's my hope, my prayer, that the accord does what it's supposed to do, that Congo enjoys for the first time in its history a constitutional transition uh, the way it should be done. That being said, I also didn't fall off the turnip truck on the way here uh, to the Atlantic Council this morning, and I, I, find, I find it very hard, it strains credulity to expect that the uh, that Joseph Kabila would actually, if he uh, had read the accord, would actually implement it. Uh, let me cite just a couple of examples. The accord is very clear uh, that the prime minister who shall be presented by the opposition, that was not part of the October 18th previous mini accord with when he when the government bought off some members of the opposition. So we're talking about the Rassemblement. They will present the prime. That prime minister will have will exercise in the accord the fullness of the the plenitude, the fullness of the prerogatives given to the prime minister in the constitution as chief of government. Go back and read the constitution of the RC, the same constitution that the voters of the country approved by 84% back in December of 2005. Let me just cite two powers that are very limiting to the president if the prime minister actually exercised them. Article 81 of the, of the Congolese Constitution says the president may only nominate as officials, and it goes through the whole ranks, military, police, security, civil service, etc., upon the proposal of the prime minister and the council of ministers. He can only nominate them if they're proposed. So patronage out the window. Same article. The president's acts must be countersigned by the prime minister to be legally valid. His ability to do anything uh, uh, the, if the new prime minister doesn't sign. Same with the, now, up to now, the prime minister's been very compliant and they sign what they're handed to them. Article 91. It is the prerogative of the prime minister and the government to define, in coordination with the president, but the prerogative of the prime minister, the policy of the nation. Uh, essentially, if 
the accord uh, enters into full force, and we take it at its the legal the text as a legal text and the new legitimacy. Uh, essentially, we have a fairly strong guarantee that elections the, the the momentum shifts to the prime minister and the cabinet. Elections are held, and in legally speaking, the the president uh, becomes uh, Queen Elizabeth minus the uh, the the pomp and the circumstance. Uh, now, could could that happen? Do miracles happen? Uh, possibly. Uh, although you know, my grandmother always told me to uh, to pray uh, to pr uh, pray as if everything depended on God, but work as if they depended on you. So I place a lot more faith in uh, in the concrete and the tangible. So I leave it at that. Excellent. Thank you. Um, let me get someone in the back corner of this room. Thank you. Good morning. Um, my question goes to, uh, I mean, one of the panelists suggested uh, some options for sanctioning um, the leaders in that particular country. So my question is, in case you have to be concerned about auditing these particular um, leaders, are you going to start from individuals or family members or the institutions that are currently, financial institutions that are currently in that country that support this particular government? And um, in terms of multinational corporations that have benefits um, from this particular government, are those sanctions and audit processes going to be extended to those corporations as well? Mm -hmm. um, and I think in the interest of time, we'll take two more questions, if that's OK. Hi, Alexis. Thanks, Alexis Area for the Congressional Research Service. I wonder if the panelists could um, help, uh, could shed some light on uh, the situation in the, in the Kasai region, um, which finally sort of made it into the public view in a, in a major way with UN OCHA's statements last week um, about a, a budding humanitarian crisis. Is what we're seeing a new form of insurgency um, and, uh, Either way, what is the link, if any, between what's happening in the Kasais and what's happening in Kinshasa? Excellent. Is there anyone else you'd like to add on? No? Uh, and could you introduce yourself too, please? Thank you. Um, and I'm so sorry. <laughs> sorry. Go. Maria de Cruz, U.S. Angola Chamber of Commerce. Uh, thank you for the great presentation. Most of the panelists mentioned Angola um, mm -hmm. at some point in their presentation. I'd like to hear from you um, what you feel that Angola could do more in order to uh, assist with the conflict? Um, and do you feel that the elections in Angola taking place this August will have effect on um, uh, resolving the issue in Congo? Okay, excellent. Um, and I'll ask Peter to, to kick us off this time. Okay. Uh, the, the, the question with regard, I'll defer the question on the specific questions on sanctions to uh, investigations to, I think Sasha enough has done a great deal of work uh, and especially some of the investigative. So to, uh, to, I think Angola has played a very helpful role, I think, not in this crisis. Uh, uh, Angola knows the Congo well. Uh, it's been engaged and it has been uh, both a bulwark of stability in the region as well as, as an important partner. And uh, 
the, uh, and I know uh, Foreign Minister Chakoti in particular has been very, very actively engaged, and that's been, I think, by all accounts, and uh, very, very helpful. Uh, obviously, with the prospect of elections in Angola uh, and the transition there uh, in August, if it goes, if everything goes as has been announced, uh, two things. One would be uh, President Dos Santos stepping aside would itself send a signal, uh, a very powerful signal, one of Africa's longer serving heads of state stepping aside uh, voluntarily, I think sends a very powerful signal, most of all to his next door neighbor. On the other hand, there is a risk in Angola going through the transition. That would be a good example. On the other hand, that means Angola's political leaders will be inward turned toward their own succession, understandably. And so uh, what, what can, uh, hope that that doesn't mean disengagement, because I think Angolan pressure has been, been very helpful uh, to date. Uh, to Alexis's question about what's going on in Kasai, I think what we're seeing, I don't think we have enough visibility to fully unpack, but I think in the best interpretation or is that obviously when things are uh, questionable or the stability is shaky at the center, all sorts of people will try to test uh, boundaries, et cetera. That's probably the most benign interpretation of it. Uh, I think there are others out there. There certainly uh, Congolese are uh, are not shy about voicing theory. There are all sorts of theories out there uh, uh, on the web and other places uh, about perhaps nefarious actors in Kinshasa trying to get leverage by stirring things up. Again, not being on the ground, I can't speak to that. But uh, given the country's history, which I think Pierre Octor, that would not be the first time someone has done something like that. So, so I think. The answer is somewhere between the most benign, which is still not good, and more malevolent possibilities, not to be precluded, uh, you know, prima facie. Anything I know about Angola, I know from Peter, so I will not add anything to that. <laughs> but uh, let me say something about, about, about Kasai. Um, I'm lucky that one of my former students actually based there, and she's been sending me emails, and I've, I've been able to follow up a little bit. Uh, I, I agree with Peter that there certainly is potential for manipulation and, and for Kinshasa politics to be uh, um, expressed locally. But I also think that, see, what happened is that back in August, a chief was killed by security force, and, and his militia, a militia associated with him has been on a rampage since then. And certainly, there's a lot of that that's about, about you know, banditry and, and, and about uh, um, manipulation of politics. But there's also a, a degree of alienation and despair that makes this possible, that makes people likely to mobilize like this. And um, if you look at the Kasai, the Kasai is this, this diamond region that, you know, both former Kasais, now they are split in multiple provinces. But this is a region that had really incredible uh, wealth potential. And the misery there is overwhelming. As you also know, it's largely UDPS uh, uh, um, sensibilities there locally, but really an administration that you can almost associate as an administration of occupation uh, uh, and really highly repressive. I spent some time in the other Kasai in Bujimai a couple years ago, and I was, I was overwhelmed by, by that. So there's a huge degree of despair and alienation. Poverty is very high. We, we hear about the East, but malnutrition is very high in the Kasai. Poverty, really the human, human uh, conditions are really dreadful. So that feeds this kind of, uh, uh, of uh, insurgency. It reminds me a little bit, the dynamics are different, but it's not that different from the Enyele 
insurgency in Equator a few years ago, which were groups fighting over access to fishing ponds. I mean, this, this gives you an idea of the, the level of desperation when people fight over access to fishing. And also, remember Bududja Congo in, in Congo Central. There's also a group there that where people find a different source of legitimacy. Chiefs are important. Chiefs provide meaning to people. They provide governance. They provide legitimacy. And when those are pushed back and the government does not give you much else, there's a situation of desperation that kind of feeds into this type of violence. So it's kind of a macro level of analysis, but that's where I would, I would look to make sense of it. Just to touch briefly on the uh, sanctions uh, question, I, you know, I think there are four main categories of uh, individuals that uh, could be the next targets for uh, smart sanctions. So, you know, the military was one that was very high, very much highlighted last year. I think that's another potential as uh, human rights abuses and repression, uh, if they do continue. Um, uh, no, let me just start out actually by saying that I, I hope that there's not a need for these things. I do hope that, in fact, the parties are able to successfully negotiate these things and, and, and we are able to, to achieve a peaceful, uh, uh, non-leveraged um, uh, uh, or, or pressurized uh, uh, situation and agreement. In any case, uh, the other three categories are financial, political, and, and the uh, family members. Um, and uh, I agree with what Peter said in terms of uh, you know ratcheting up w over time as as needed as necessary. Um, I, I also don't uh, think that the focus should be all on Congolese actors. Uh, there are some very influential outsiders. Uh, we've all noted the FCPA case where a hundred million dollars worth of bribes were paid. Well, those bribes were paid not, not by Congolese. Um, they were paid by outsiders. And so um, I, I think that there, there can be uh, an escalation of strategies. The, those state-owned enterprises uh, we talked about earlier, they have chairmen and directors. Um, I don't think it would be necessarily helpful to sanction a particular entity because they could always set up another entity on, you know, with different um, uh, directors and so forth. But some of those powerful financial advisors uh, who are well known, I, if I mentioned names today, would, you know, no one would be uh, greatly surprised. Um, so uh, the Congo is a country that has received a lot of attention and the Bloomberg investigation, the New York Times investigation uh, have showed that uh, you know, there, there's a number of people out there who who would be possibly targeted and, and who are using the international financial system. So they're using our own currencies and our own banks uh, to transfer that money. And so there's action to be taken on the banks as well. Thanks. Um, I think we have time for one or two more questions. We're about to, we are. And can you introduce yourself? Uh, Dan Silverstein. Heuristic management. We're processing uh, a new world order in uh, leadership at the United Nations and donor nations and sub-Saharan Africa, how uh, do you suspect it will influence what's going on in the DRC? Okay, thank you. Um, and Tony, did you have, yeah, Tony Gambino, the former uh, USA director in Kinshasa. Thank you very much. Um, we can think of the Congo sometimes at three different levels. You've been talking about it mainly at one level, these discussions among the political class but frankly, those sometimes float disembodied away from the rest of the reality of the Congo. As we just heard in what you were talking about, Pierre, about the widespread poverty uh, that's unfortunately characterized not just the Kasais, but most of the Congo for a long time. But I'd like to ask you about the middle level, which is kind of uh, making sure that economically the country doesn't collapse and can somehow muddle through. We had a period over the last few years under the prime ministership of Matata Ponyo 
where at least he had some credibility in the international community and could talk with the international financial institutions and others to uh, keep things uh, together. That's gone. This new government under Sami Badibanga, as best as I can tell, doesn't have anybody credible to do any economic management from the prime minister on down. Yet many people comment that a major financial crisis is coming in the Congo within the next few months. The IMF and others are speaking about this quite openly in Kinshasa and elsewhere. Uh, how do you see that affecting uh, everything else you've been talking about in terms of if the economy really does crack sometime uh, in whatever period, uh, how might that affect um, everything else that we've been talking about? Thank you. Thank you. Do I have to call in one of you? I can certainly take uh, uh, Mr. Gambino's question. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. Pierre. Yeah. Um, you know, the Matata government uh, had a, I, I think the Matata government had a credibility that exceeded uh, what it, it deserved to some extent. And it certainly looked like, I mean, he was technocrat and he had, of course, a fairly successful stint as Minister of Finance and they carried that with him. And he did something like bankarization and um, um, there was some degree of macroeconomic stability. But bear in mind, the Congolese franc uh, depreciated uh, still under him, uh, went from 980 to about 1300 to the dollar. Of course, part of that is because the dollar has been strengthening so much, but still. Um, the budget, you know, last year they had to revise the budget, so they went from like an $8 billion budget to $6 billion uh, mid-year mid, mid through the, the fiscal year, um, realizing they're not going to get the revenue <coughs> they were hoping for. So I agree with you that there's a um, significant danger of an economic crisis there. Um, Matata might not have been uh, all he was built up to be, but I agree with you that um, even if we have people who are competent, in a Badibanga or Chisekedi government, it's very unlikely that anybody will be able to do too much. And so if uh, copper prices, uh, they've recovered to some extent, but if, uh, if the situation remains what it is, with China slowing down, then um, I, I think that you point to something significant, that um, it will not facilitate things. Yeah. I don't really have much more to contribute to that, ex except to know that you make a fine point that this is a significant risk. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the, uh, uh, the, the fate of the economic crisis in Congo really rests with the government. I mean, you know, we, at the same time that this crisis was deteriorating and the currency was deteriorating, inflation was rising, the prices for basic commodities on the streets were, were rising, in some cases, up to 50% for certain food items. Uh, the government uh, was, uh, there was millions, tens of millions that was going missing, right? So we, uh, with the New York Times, helped document $95.7 million that went missing from Cheka Meats, um, $8 million of which was transferred in cash. Uh, and disappeared. So, uh, it, you know, th there was a new agreement uh, uh, signed with um, uh, Freeport yesterday, uh, undisclosed amount, but I'm sure it wasn't, you know, $100. So uh, where is that money going to go? You know, what, what is going to happen to that? Um, I, you know, I, I do credit uh, Matata for, you know, organizing these Troika meetings uh, uh, very regularly and publishing the minutes so we, everyone knew exactly how many reserves they were left and so we could all track that, in fact, they were, they were dwindling <laughs> uh, uh, week by week. Um, I haven't seen that from, the, from Badibanga, um, so at least they were on top of monitoring the situation. But, you know, the IMF has been trying to get in with, an, uh, with a program for years and the Congolese government, frankly, has said, well, we are not interested. 
Um, and so uh, then they came asking for $500 million uh, abruptly uh, last year from the World Bank, but there's not enough uh, 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 governance transparency and, and there's always political crisis as well and mismanagement of the, the, the um, uh, of, of various things in tra from transparency, non-publication of contracts, et cetera, et cetera. So I really do think that this crisis is resolvable. Some of the commodity prices have actually come back. Cobalt has also gone up a bit. Oil has obviously gone up. So um, I think this, it's, it's manageable. But if, it's, if, if they do not manage it correctly, yes, it will be much worse. And you'd see many more people in the streets, not just for the political issues. Let me briefly revisit my answer based on what you said. I think that you, you add some important points. Um, Matata, I mean, he, he did, there, were, there were some achievements there. There's no doubt transparent, some degree of transparency was there. He was always unable to establish control over Jekamine, for example, over these, these parallel accounts, over the Ministry of Portfolio that really is much more under the authority of the president. And that has been a big weakness. I mean, he complained about that himself. It's like, I don't have that authority. I can't go after these people. And so if, if the management of natural resource was more transparent, if the, the amount of leakage that takes place there was harnessed in, then I think Congo does have the fiscal resources to, to weather a storm. But, uh, but we're not there, and certainly I don't see uh, um, a big, all-encompassing government having the kind of capacity to, to get that done in the coming year. Mm -hmm. I would uh, only add uh, uh, sorry, uh, two, maybe three points. One is, as Sasha mentioned, we have not had that accounting from the government. And we certainly have not had the type of regular reporting from the central bank we had when Jean-Claude was, uh, was running it. Uh, whatever one may think of the man, he kept things, he, he's got a set of books that one could look at. So we don't, we don't have visibility. But my best accounts, I think most estimates are that in the last two years, they've burned through at least half, if not more, of the, of the foreign reserve. It's gone. Uh, we, get, we have anecdotal evidence right now of not only civil servants not being paid, but dangerously military units not being paid. Uh, so again, we don't know, is, are they just saving for the, rain, the storm that's coming, or are they, is it emptied? We don't know. We don't have that, anything close to that visibly. We haven't had for months. But I add is that if we compound a political crisis, the failure collapse of the agreement, with an economic crisis, that is a perfect storm. And that, that's something to be worried about. But uh, whether we can't, it's very difficult to make that forecast because in fact, we don't, the, the type of visibility that we once had to a certain measure, we no longer have. We are nearing the end of our, uh, our time, unfortunately. So I'm going to ask the panelists if you have any final remarks or wanted to add on anything that hadn't been raised in the discussion so far. Um, I mean, I, I think that uh, we're at a new crossroads with the new administration. I think that there's a number of uh, new opportunities. Um, I would hope that the uh, special envoy position would um, would continue. And I think that uh, you know we you know it's good that we're having a sober assessment right now of what's uh, what what's likely to occur, um, and not just celebrating a, a piece of paper. Uh, and so uh, I, I think that you know. It, it, this is an important moment to look forward and, and plan um, some of those policy steps. Excellent. I think that uh, uh, I agree with what my colleagues here said and, and about the, uh, I mean, I share some hope that, you know, with, with uh, significant uh, support, oppression, pressure, things might go forward. I do want to put a couple of uh, maybe dumpers at the end saying that, um, 
by and large, we have to bear in mind that the, odd, the odds of, of a peaceful and uncontroversial elections are low in, in any kind of scenario. Um, this is not how elections really take place uh, in Congo. And then since it would be not an easy one like we had in 2011, which, which already was controversial, um, I think that we have to be realistic about what we hope to achieve. So this is likely to be uh, uh, difficult and chaotic. I also think that we have to be honest that the odds of sustainable democracy in Congo are not very high for the short to medium term. I mean, this, you know, because of the low trust environment, because of the, the resource issues, because political parties remain really uh, very personalized, many of the structural uh, conditions for democracy really are not met yet. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't all push and help the Congolese who want to get there. Get there. There certainly is a lot of democratic aspiration, but the material necessities for, for democracy are really lacking, and so we should be reasonable about, about what we can hope to see. I would just conclude with saying we are at a, uh, as my boss here at the Atlantic Council, Frank Kemp, likes to say, an inflection point. Uh, and it's a very important one, and it's one which, given the dynamics outside Congo, it's important that, and I make this appeal to Congolese civil society and other friends of Congo, to maintain the vigilance and keep the uh, international community. Because the international community is going to be, the dynamics are going to, for, in a way, involuntarily force it to take the eye off the ball in a critical period. Uh, we have a political transition here in the United States. Uh, a new president, not only a new president coming in, but that means a whole new administration. Uh, Special Envoy Periello left his job on the 23rd of December. Of course, no, no, he's now running for governor of Virginia. Uh, the, uh, and that position is being, uh, there's a caretaker administration of that office, but the new administration will have to decide whether the office continues or not. Uh, who staffs out the front office of the Africa Bureau? Uh, all, the, all those other questions. France and other major partners in the middle of its own electoral season. The first round of the, uh, the left, uh, leftist primaries is this weekend. Uh, so another country in transition as, as well. So in the midst of all this transition, it's very easy without the voice of civil society and others for things to slip. And then all of a sudden, we wake up mid-year, and uh, then the cry will be, it's impossible to organize elections in six months. Uh, well, we know now we're supposed to do it in one year, not six months. So it's that type of slipping slippage that uh, has unfortunately bedeviled uh, Congo the last few years. And so I call on the advocacy community, civil society, to uh, keep help keep uh, policymakers focused on this. Excellent. I want to thank everyone for coming today for this discussion. And we we'll hope to see you again soon.